thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wilderness is a necessity. John Moore Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for listening uh, last week and the weeks prior, and if you're just joining me this week... Um, you might want to go back and listen to the last few episodes, at least, uh, season three, uh, to kind of catch up on where we are, but, um, if not, just continue to listen, and, uh, you'll pick up on how things are going a little bit as time goes on. Um, so yeah, this week, uh, episode, we are going to be continuing to look at the groups living in, um, Central and Eastern Iran, and then moving a little bit out into the rest of Central Asia. But before that, I did want to expand just a bit on a point I brought up at the end of the last episode um, when I talked about the Neolithic sites of um, Alikash and Ganjadara. I mentioned the peoples of these sites seem to have been fairly closely related to each other, at least genetically um and this led to a question from a listener asking why there wasn't a name for this group similar to something like um uh the Naltufian or the Kiamian or uh Tiraletian or Zarzian um that we've talked about in various episodes leading up to this and this was a great question and I meant to actually address it to an extent um at the same time I talked about it last week um, when I when I was mentioning it not re- like this part of the world not receiving as much attention as it should um, but I just for whatever reason I didn't have it properly kind of laid out in my notes for it to trigger but it is something I had thought to mention um, but it, basically as far as I can see there is no general consensus for these sites at least in English literature uh, about these places. Um, Now, maybe that is different in another language, but I don't think this is the case. And I've read a couple of short articles translated from a couple of other languages. I think there was one that was... um, I'm not sure which uh, Iranian language it was. I'm not sure if it was Farsi or, or Persian or whatever. But it was a very brief article, and it was translated by a scholar. Like, it wasn't something I had done. It was on um, a JSTOR. Um, and then there were a couple of articles, I think, written by um, a couple of French archaeologists. Um, but um, they didn't drop a name for it that was at least, you know, new or something I hadn't heard before. Um so basically, they didn't mention a blanket term either. So I, I just I didn't try to come up with one. Now, why this is the case, I am not sure—at least a hundred percent sure—but I can make a few educated guesses. And um, if there is anyone who has some information to counter or support, you know, this, or you know, just educate me, I'd be very happy to know. Uh, and I ask that you please, um, you know, reach out via email or on Twitter or on YouTube, wherever. Um, but 
Um, the other groups that we've discussed share um, a number of factors. Uh, cultural artifacts, uh, which is, you know, things like non-utilitarian tools, maybe decorations, um, you know, like wood carvings, toys, you know, or potential toys for children, that kind of thing. Um, then you have um, tools, actual tools used for work. Um, and these tools are produced with generally the same techniques and material. Um, and then, of course, you have how they're living. Um, you know, uh, hunting uh, targets that are favored, like a group favoring deer over uh, wild goats or bulls or that kind of thing. Um, f plants that they enjoyed over others, you know, etc. Um, the sites in Iran share some tools in terms of um, the material they're made with um, and in how they're designed. But due to the increased um, uh, variation of you know how they were living in terms of um, in addition to hunting and gathering they some sites are more favorable to proto agriculture and some are practicing much more proto herding or pastoralism and the environments needed for either um, are also another factor of uh, agricultural groups are going to be you know tending to live closer to um, the marshes and, and riverbanks and that kind of places whereas the um, the other sites tend to show you know they're living in the foothills and the shrublands that kind of thing um, and that that required them to also create divergent tools and divergent cultural artifacts um, came about from these different experiences and of course that's not even to mention um, their structures like what they were living with um, or living in um, because all of these sites are semi sedentary um, so these sites they don't show a cohesive culture but it in fact to me it seems like it's more of a group that has broken apart into separate collective bands that base themselves around uh, their preferred lifestyle or environment maybe maybe they preferred living in the mountains thus they they had to try to uh, supplement their hunting and gathering with you know domesticated animals or they they may have preferred living clo close to these large rivers so they could uh, fish and hunt waterfowl um, and then you know that led to them planting you know, wild crops or domesticated versions of wild crops. Um, and then eventually, you know, after a couple of generations, they develop and perfect their respective skills and lifestyles so much um, that they then begin to reconnect um, but due to maybe a shared language or a shared, you know, um, mythology, something along those lines. Or maybe one group just outgrew and outpaced the other in terms of development, and that led to them maybe reestablishing or reabsorbing 
um, their cousins under some type of new social or religious dynamic. Um, so, you know, um, that is why I think there probably isn't a name, because they're not a group yet, uh, though they will be again. Uh, and probably were before this point, but again, just due to the nature of hunter-gatherers, it may be hard to kind of differentiate them from um, their neighbors or, you know, from the people that were living there, you know, in the thousand or two years beforehand. So, um, I also mentioned some other sites in passing, um, but when we return to this region in the next time skip, I will talk more about them. Uh, these are sites like um, Chogamish and Chogabonut. Um, and I am... Apologize again if I am butchering the pronunciation. I do not speak Persian, much like I did not speak Turkish. So uh, please bear with me. Um, for now, though, we need to complete our discussion of, um, I guess, what is modern Iran uh, at between 8,000 BC to 6,000 BC. Now, unlike the area in the northeast, and the area around the Caspian Sea coast that we talked about um, a couple of weeks ago or the plains and foothills we discussed last time, um, which had, you know, uh, around 10 to 12 confirmed sites of occupation um, by semi-sedentary hunter-gatherers, farmers, or herders. Um, the rest of modern Iran, or what will become modern Iran, has far fewer sites. Um, they maybe have the same amount total as either of those other regions that we've discussed in the last two episodes. And of course, um, keep in mind that those are just the discovered sites, and it doesn't you know, take account um, groups of 100% mobile hunter-gatherers that you know are not leaving these kind of traces, uh, but... Um, even today, uh, the part of Iran, or the part of Iran that we're going to be focusing on in this episode is not nearly as densely popul populated as, um, the, the places we talked about last time. Um, there are a couple exceptions to this, um, Tehran, uh, which is to the south of, uh, a mountain range, but it's just over the range to get to the to the Caspian Sea. So um, there's a lot of modern conveniences that make it possible for a city like uh, Tehran or Isfahan to exist. Um, but by and large, this is the less densely populated part of Iran that we're focusing on. Um, and this is due to the fact that the region is, again, super mountainous, and it doesn't benefit from being part of um, the water systems of Mesopotamia in the west or the Caspian Sea in the north. Um, the Zagros Mountains is cutting off the latter and the Alborz Mountains are cutting off the former. So this region has few, if any, large navigable rivers. Um, there are a couple of small ones, uh, streams that, you know, they're formed when snows in the mountains melt. Um, but those are few and far between, and there might not always be enough flow depending on the time of year. Um, 
And there are a few sizable lakes in this region. Uh, they are almost all salt lakes, salt lakes though. And this, you know, they're not ideal for large scale agriculture. You can grow certain crops with salt water, but um, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do. And um, things like, I don't think rice can grow in salt water quite like that. So it's more types of wheat or barley, things of that nature. Um, and there's also uh, precipitation in the region is also very low. Um, though, again, at this time frame, it may have been higher. Um, though, um, in modern times, um, I guess, I think most rains happen in the region between October and April. Um, and this is likely to freeze and make snow between November and February. So, um, you've got a month in the fall where it's raining and it's not freezing, but it's still probably too cold to grow anything. And then you've got March and April in the, you know, early spring. It still might be too cold or the ground might be too hard to properly dig or make it very hard to dig and actually get crops in the ground early. Um, so that's kind of the reason, um, you know, that, you know, um, herding is very popular or was very popular in the region. Um, now, of course, melting snows would help, uh, and that causes, you know, the wild vegetation and grasslands and shrubs to kind of sprout, um, you know, in the spring, which is, of course, very useful for grazing animals. And you can just move them through the region as the snows are melting, um, and then just keep them, keep them mobile until, um, you know, it's time for you to return again and repeat the cycle over and over. Um, so the few permanent sites that are in this region are Sialk or Tepesh Sialk, uh, Mushki, Tolibashi, and Zaga. Now Sialk and Zaga are closer to the center of modern Iran, um, which uh, this kind of elevated region between the two mountain ranges is sometimes referred to as the Iranian Plateau. Um, now, uh, Mushki and Toel Bashri are more in the far southeast of modern Iran. Think, um, if you were to look at a map today, it would be kind of, um, uh, away from the coast, um, near the UAE. Um, and kind of towards more um, Iran's border with Pakistan. Um, and then you have, um, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, so yeah, sorry, um, lost my train of thought there. Uh, now, I'm not going to go into too much detail on these places in this episode because these sites are just beginning to be occupied on a permanent basis. Um, somewhere in the last 500 years of our, you know, um, 8,000 to 6,000 BC uh, timeline. So maybe 6,500, although it could have been a couple of hundred years after. 
uh, that that this happened. Um, in fact, it may not even be till a hundred years or so after we're ending. Um, that's kind of the the time frame that we have. It's it's not easy to necessarily date some of these products. Um, but um, by the time we return, though, in the next season, these sites can be you know could be seen as uh, or could be considered fairly successful. Um, at transitioning to um, what might be considered a town or a village. Um, and it's based on, um, you know, those type of organizations. And, you know, they can be seen to be fully embracing ceramics and some level of true agriculture or herding, depending on, you know, where they're located. Uh, so, you know, when we jump forward again, these places will be firmly established. Um, but of course, due to their nature, they're not going to undergo that final push of urbanization and go to a city model, at least not yet. Um, and I don't think this region ever really sees true cities as you would, you wouldn't encounter them as city states, at least historically speaking. Um, but we're going to get into that in the future. And I am still planning on doing like a episode devoted to um, uh, urbanization and how specifically towns and villages develop and then develop further into a full-blown city. Uh, that is still a plan of mine and it will be at some point this season, although I don't know the best time to fit it in just yet. Um, now, that said, there are still two more settlements to mention. Uh, this is Yarim Tepe and Sung Ichakmak. Now, these two sites are located in modern Iran's far northeast, and they're located near the border of uh, modern Turkmenistan. Um, now, these two sites are associated with a specific culture uh, that is believed to have existed at this time, and that is the Yetun culture. Now, this name comes from the site called Yetun. Uh, this is a type site. Uh, it basically serves as kind of like the model for the rest of this culture, uh, or the rest of this culture site, I should, sites, I should say. Uh, and it is in a very historically active region, at least when it comes to human habitation. Um, it is a mere, I think, 30 kilometers north of Ashgabat, which is the modern day capital of Turkmenistan, and it's the largest city uh, in Turkmenistan, um, which is, it, that that's about 20 miles, I think, maybe a little bit less than 20. And um, this site was occupied from around 7,200, and it will continue to be occupied and used uh, till about 4,500. So it is, um, it is a very long used site, though I should go ahead and just preface this from the outset, it is not occupied 100% of the time, and we'll get into the reasons of that here in just a minute. But um, uh, if you were to look at a population density map of uh, Turkmenistan, you'll see that most of their population lives across um, the Kapit Dag Mountains, where Shaitun is very close by. Um, and then they go to the south uh, east. Uh, there are a couple of rivers there that meet 
that are either flowing um, uh, from, or I'm sorry, flowing into um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and they are uh, very uh, heavily populated. There's not a lot of huge cities, but there are a ton of numerous smaller settlements all up and down these rivers, uh, and that's where you will find most of Turkmenistan's population concentrated along this mountain range uh, going into these river valleys or there are some other sites kind of going to the northwest and then there is a gap in between another mountain range and in this gap you can get to the plains or a plain where you can reach the Caspian Sea shore and coast and then you can follow that coast um, south all the way down to um, some of the other mountain valleys in Iran, or you can just continue following the coast until you kind of uh, have to turn um, west and then uh, north, and then from there you can get to a few of the Caucasus regions as well. Um, and the Kapit Dag mountain range is separate from the um, the Alborz mountains. Uh, they are they are technically separate ranges, but of course, just due to tectonic shifts, um, they are kind of butted right up against each other. So uh, this is one of those regions where you do see a lot of seismic activity. Um, oh, and the name, uh, interestingly enough, Kapit Dag, um, it is debated, but um, I think the most popular... Um, origin for the name uh, is believed to have meant a bad mountain uh, and that's not bad that you know it's unlivable it just means that it was difficult to traverse um, so that may be you know part of the etymological origin at least um, and uh, that name is also not 100% in use like there are different um, peaks and they all have a lot of different local names that may not be used outside of the people living in that specific region. So just keep that in mind. Um, but to get back to the Yaitun um, culture, um, they do not grow very many types of plants. They only had um, wheat and barley and a uh, very limited number of wheat. They, I think they only had two varieties um, and they have found evidence of um, using uh, wooden and bone um, handled uh, sickles or knives um, with stone blades to harvest these. And then of course they have the, the requisite hand mills and um, things like that used to make uh, things like flour or bread or bases for uh, soups or porridges. Um, and this is the oldest place where you can find evidence of farming in Central Asia. Um, and I think that dates to around, I want to say it's around the 7,000, somewhere in the 7,000 to 6,500 BC mark. So it is something that is coming along a little bit later compared to some of the places we've discussed, maybe a couple hundred years uh, 
um, before that fact. And there are no wild versions of any of these crops in the region. So um, they were just growing these domesticated strains that the wild varieties that uh, these crops descended from are not present and were not present in this region. However, um, there are, of course, plenty of wild plants, flowers, things like that that would have been useful for hunters and gatherers. And um, even as these sedentary or semi-sedentary communities are being established, um, those wild plants would be used even before they were um, importing crops into the region. And this is a place where you get evidence for very early um domestication events, uh, specifically goats. The um, I don't think sheep were present in this region, or at least I haven't read anything specifically mentioning, mentioning sheep, um, but goats definitely were. So this is possible one of those areas where goats may have been independently uh, domesticated, whereas some places uh, in Iran or uh, Turkey were also independently um domesticating those types of animals. Uh, can't say for sure, at least not yet. Um, yes, also they do have um, uh, they do have some overlap or similarities with these early agricultural places in um, Iran, at least in terms where it comes to their um, their tools for harvesting. Um, those type of things, uh, as well as their early ceramics. There's a lot of similarities there. Um, so there is certain levels of, um, if not out and out borrowing or trading of technology, um, these people could have had uh, a similar source uh, to get this type of um, technology from. Uh, perhaps there was a singular site that um, different groups spread out from that we just haven't located yet. But um, again, that's all speculation. Um, but yeah, so those are um, you know, uh, the big uh, locations in Turkey. Um, I did mention again those places uh, that have... Uh, Sites in Iran, uh, Yarim Tepe and Song E Chakmak. Uh, these are considered Jaitun sites. There is also um, another called um, uh, Turing Tepe, is another. Uh, and these are all um, in Iran, though there are a few others in um, uh, Turkmenistan. Uh, I think Chopan is one and Togolok is another. And these are all very close by to Jaitun. Um, so it appears what's happening is that every, you know, every every so often that they have these very small uh, locations and they will live there for a while, then they'll abandon the site for a time and then they will return and just continue kind of how they lived uh, prior. Um, I don't think there are very many large sites. I think uh, Jaitun, which again is the, the type site, um, it was not 
it didn't have the space or at least it didn't have the housing for any more than 200 people uh, at its maximum so you know they probably had you know relatives at some of these other smaller sites and again this is spread all throughout this region and they definitely had interactions with peoples living on the iranian plateau um Oh, and though there is similarity between these early ceramics, um, the Jaitun culture main, begins to develop its own artistic style that kind of separates it from um, some of those places in Iran. Um, and again, it, it's very long-lasting uh, culture. Um, it will be present throughout the region until about 4,500 BCE, um, where it will be uh, replaced with a little bit more um, well-organized or um, more technologically advanced uh, groups. That is not to say that they are wiped out, but they do seem to be uh, subsumed by these um, uh, other forces uh, or these other peoples in the region. Uh, but that's all stuff to cover in the future. For now, though, um, I think this is probably a good place to uh, call it for this week. Uh, we got some good ground covered. Um, next week, um, I will probably try to talk about um, uh, the other stands. Um, I don't know if I'll get through all of them. There's not a huge amount to go on for most of them, but um, I'll double check and just make sure there's nothing uh, major. But I think uh, we'll get the rest of Central Asia minus Kazakhstan taken care of um, next week, and we'll probably get into Afghanistan, maybe Pakistan as well. Um, we'll have to see. Uh, Kazakhstan will be more part of... Um, the Eurasian step episodes. But once we finish up with the stands, we're going to be moving into India and talking about the people that are living there um, at the 8,000 to 6,000 BC mark. So I hope you all are looking forward to those episodes. Uh, I don't think there's anything major in terms of housekeeping. Uh, nope. Wait, I take that back. Um, the weekend... Or the episode on the 27th may be slightly delayed. Um, I'm going to try and record well ahead of time, but I am leaving town um, that weekend of the 24th. Um, a friend of mine's getting married in April, and his bachelor uh, party is that weekend. And um, I will be spending that with several friends. Um, so I may not be able to record until I return that following week. So it may be a day or two. Um, but I'm going to hope and have everything done well beforehand. So uh, just go ahead and putting that out there. Um, uh, also, I am going to have a couple more episodes up on YouTube of the backlog that we have. Um, been very pleased with uh, the subscribers. Um, uh, around 20, which isn't a huge number, but considering it's just a... Uh, audio medium and not a visual medium um, that's not terrible 
if you do have a YouTube account, um, you can look me up there. Go ahead and subscribe. You don't have to listen there. I know I'm far behind, but I am getting closer to catching up all the time. So uh, that would kind of help things out, get some more growth on the channel, uh, earn the feeds, as it were. Um, but uh, if you have any questions or feedback, again, please feel free to email me. I always look forward to hearing from some people. Um, my email, you can reach me at is waradrevpod at gmail.com, or you can reach me via direct message on Twitter, which I will um, you know, be happy to uh, you know, uh, put in the episode description, put the link to that in there. And then, of course, um, the YouTube, um, you can, I believe, comment on any video, or I believe... Um, you can send messages there as well, but if not, I'd be glad to um, to respond to any comments that you happen to leave on the video. But, again, thank you all for listening. I hope you have a good day and a good rest of your week. Thank you, and goodbye.